Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm your host, journalist Holly Rubenstein, and here each week I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with, to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. On today's episode, I'm joined by one of the world's most successful adventure and nature photographers, Chris Burkhard. Nearly 4 million people follow Chris on Instagram as he travels throughout the year to some of the world's most remote destinations and extreme environments, often requiring Chris to take on immense physical challenges to capture his work. His stories inspire us to consider our relationship with nature and the importance of the preservation of wild places everywhere. His travel diaries take us from Greenland to the Kuril Islands and from remote Iceland to the beaches of California with some great photography tips at the end too. So buckle up, let's get started. Chris Burkhard, welcome to The Travel Diaries. This has been a long time in the making. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I, um, I'm sorry that sometimes it can be a little challenging with my travel schedule to kind of line things up. And I know that um, this has been a little bit in the making in terms of uh, scheduling and aligning travel dates and those things. So I appreciate your patience and um, it's grateful. I'm grateful to, to be here. Where where am I talking to you from? Where are you at right now? Oh, well, I'm in London in England. Beautiful. And you nice. are? I'm in California, Pismo Beach. Um, I've got a little studio space right by the ocean and my house is about three miles away and I, I live in a, kind of a remote part of central California. So it's... Um, I feel lucky, to say the least. Well, actually, before we get started with your travel diaries, I'd love to ask you a bit about Pismo Beach and living in Central California, because like mm-hmm. you say, it's so I was there actually in 2019. So I've been yes. to Pismo Beach and I know how beautiful it is, how vast and golden that sandy beach is. But for British travelers, I'd say in particular, you know, if they're doing that drive up the coast you might stop in Santa Barbara and then kind of go through it to get up to say Big Sur yeah and they're missing out on somewhere really great so like tell me about Pismo Beach and why you love it well that's a good that's a good point it's funny because actually a lot of people when they drive from say LA to San Francisco they actually just bypass it completely because you can take the five freeway if you know California you can kind of take the five and it's direct Mm -hmm. or you can take the coast so I I live on kind of like the 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 coastal route, right? I live on a bit more of like the scenic tour. And as you mentioned, a lot of people kind of blast through this area just to get to like Big Sur and, and Santa Cruz and Monterey, which are gorgeous. Um, but I that's kind of what I love about it. I love the simplicity of it. It's a small town. And I think that it feeds a lot into like what's inspired me as a kid, like growing up in an environment where there was access to dirt roads and open spaces and kind of I guess you could say like just remote environments where it felt like I could get lost. It felt like I could escape. That's kind of what made me fall in love with it. And when I grew up, I was looking for that, you know, should I move from here? Should I go somewhere else? Should I be in a bigger city? You know, it's only like a town of like 
45,000 people. And I settled on staying here because I felt like there was something special about being in an environment that inspires you, despite the fact that I could have maybe made more money living in Los Angeles or San Francisco or Seattle mm. or somewhere that yeah. had a bit more of like a hub for work. I, I guess I just, I have, a, I have a real kinship to the area and I feel like it's important for creatives to be in environments that do inspire them in some way. And it's a big surfers community, right there? Yeah, exactly. Huge, huge surf community. That's kind of a big part of it. I think that's kind of a part of like what what obviously made me fall in love with it was like the ocean environment or um, is is a big part of life here. You know, yeah. there, there yeah, are it's a so way many, of life. Yes, yeah, and there there are so many things that you can you can on on a weekday or a weekend you can go out and you can go to the tide pools, you can go surfing, you can go to the lakes, you can be in that environment. We don't really have much like rivers. There's not much of like a river community. But um, it's incredible for just about everything else. And I think that that's what makes me really appreciate it and love it is like the fact that I can access just so much cool terrain mm. from my doorstep. And it's been a really good place to raise a family, which is kind of, you know, where oh. I'm at now in my life. Yeah. Thinking about a lot. and You know, yeah. That's so nice. Such a good quality of life. I often think about California and the time that I spent there and how I kind of dream of kind of living that outdoorsy lifestyle. It's very different to uh, rainy, yeah. w- windy London, I can tell you that. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'll tell you one thing. There's there's aspects of London that I do miss. I love the the bigger city culture, you know, that comes from it. You know, you're, you're indoctrinated with so many ideas and thoughts and people. And I miss that sometimes. That's why I like to travel. And when I've shown films in London and I've been there, it's 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 invigorating. You know, there's something really exciting about that too. I don't think it's a permanent thing for me, but um, but I do miss it and I and I look forward to it when I get the chance to you know when I get the chance to go there. So. Yeah. So we are going to go on a journey through the seven chapters of your life's travel diary so far, Chris. Nice. Um, starting with chapter one, that is your earliest childhood travel memory. Yeah, um, that's a great question. You know, I, I hate to say this, but you know, I didn't I didn't travel much as a kid. So my early travel memory, they, you know, I have them, but they they just aren't these profound. Like I went to Hawaii and I felt the sand. Yeah. You know, I think that um, the furthest I had ever traveled as a kid was to Hawaii. I was two years old. I don't remember it at all. But my earliest memories were actually probably traveling with my grandpa to like the Southwest of the U.S. and mm-hmm. to kind of those Western states. So for me, again, I grew up in a small kind of community uh, in Central California, and I just didn't have access to, to you know, monetarily to going out and seeing the world um, on a plane. So my the, my world was basically like as big as it gets from here, the coast of California to like the, the Sierra mountains, you know, the Sierra Nevada mountain range. So what I'm saying is like, it was just a couple States that I could really felt like I could explore. And those were profound. I remember going on road trips with my grandpa um, as a kid fishing and going to like the Sierra Nevada, Nevada mountain range, going out towards, um, you know, New Mexico, seeing, uh, you know, indigenous ruins in those environments. And, and that was the extent of my travel as a kid. Um, it, it's funny because as a kid, I mean, I was a punk, right? I was not the best, you know, the easiest person to like talk to or listen to or whatever. I just, I, on those trips, I would have rather stayed in my car, stayed in the car and played video games. And at times, you know, my, my family would have to force me out and go see this or, you know, walk to the edge of the Grand Canyon. And so it's (laughs) profound to me that somebody was willing to take the time to show me these things because it left such an impression that later in life, 
I did, I did kind of come around and be like, well, these are significant. Like these are special, like these are environments that I want to be in. And it took years. And so I guess there's something to be said for the fact that sometimes we don't realize the impact we have on kids or, or on youth, you know, in some way. And so I think that was, mm. that's really important to me. It's a, yeah, it's a really significant yeah. thing. And also, I mean, though you didn't get on a plane during that time, it's, it's, extraordinary how varied um, and wide-ranging the landscape of your home state of California mm. and the surrounding states is. So, I mean, just in California alone, you can have a, a ski holiday and then a, a beach holiday and a surf holiday and then a, you know, hiking holiday. It's just such a, yeah. a varied state. So uh, to that end, I guess it, it it didn't matter so much that you couldn't get, that you didn't go farther afield because there was just so much on your doorstep. Right. And I think that landscape wise, it offers a lot, but I think that culturally it offers very little. I think that's the biggest difference, right? I think that as right. a kid, it's so important, you know, prior to your twenties, I feel like to really be, to really be given a glimpse into how other people live, how other, how other religions live, how, how religion can play a role in, in certain culture's daily life, you know, and, and that's how much of the world operates, how poverty and wealth and other things like that can can play a role. So to me, I was very blessed and and, and my life was enriched by the, the the beauty of the California landscape and the beauty of the Southwest. I mean, I, I truly feel like there's nowhere more diverse in the world, but it does leave something to be desired for education in terms of like what's out there in the world. And I think that's, you know, to, to what we were talking about before, like what you get the chance to experience on a daily basis is such a broad variety of perspectives and, and people and, and just the way, the way people see the world. It's really beautiful. Mm. And so did that kind of thirst for discovery and for varied culture kind of, at what point did that come? And, and did that come with your growing you know interest in photography did they kind of come hand in hand yes and no my interest in photography kind of came from first and foremost just wanting to see the world it wasn't about capturing a beautiful landscape or it wasn't about necessarily feeling like oh i needed to i need to find this you know uh, this way to express myself that wasn't it really i wasn't like looking for my voice but i i did feel um, sheltered like i felt like as i got into my teens I felt like I didn't know much of what was out there in the world. I felt very much um, like I'd read magazines about places and I'd, I'd watch shows about places and I just didn't get it. I didn't understand, you know, I, I wanted to know more. And I, so I think I came to it from a place of wanting to see what was out there. Mm -hmm. And also too, there was an element to that that was very much like I, I would spend my weekends or my time exploring California or the coast of California with you know, surfing with friends and, and that sort of became important to me as well. And so with that, it was kind of one of those things where it was the byproduct of like me wanting to see what else was out in the world and thinking that maybe this was like my golden ticket. And um, yeah. So and it was. And like, it was. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. Cutting to the end of the podcast, that. it was. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> was there a kind of a, a place that you shot that kind of made you first fall in love with photography, would you say? Yeah, I would say that um, it was particularly Yosemite, you know, uh, spending time in that environment and then, and then being there in person, seeing the beauty of it. And then all of a sudden seeing um, pictures from say Ansel Adams or somebody else and being like, wow, like this is what this can look like when captured. 
this is what this can, this is how you can, how you can almost um, relate this or transform this place in a photograph because it, it felt vastly different. You know, you, you go to Yosemite and it's beautiful, but then you see the photographs and it looks otherworldly. And I know, I knew it was possible. Um, but to kind of give somebody like an ethereal perspective of a place that felt really special. And I guess I just wanted to in some way capture that myself and, mm. um, and almost celebrate it in my own way. It felt like, you know, giving your voice to it in some way. And, and so I was, I was like smitten by it. You know, I was smitten by the process. Um, but I definitely wasn't like thinking of myself like a photographer, you know, at that point, that wasn't the way that I, I, I thought. I was where my life was going to go, really. So was there a kind of pivotal turning point where you realized you were a photographer, a professional photographer? It's so funny because that is probably the most common question I get. It's I like, really... you know, what what was the moment that you knew, you know, you were you were going to be a professional photographer? And and um, and and I, and I definitely it's it's funny because when I chose to pursue this craft. I, I very vividly remember I was sitting at a job. I worked at a magazine store called Esquire News. It was like your typical crappy magazine store. I sat at a desk right here and, you know, people, you know, where people would come up and buy magazines and right to my left were all like the pornos, right? Like all the nudie <laughs> magazines, like this is because they were always behind the desk. And so I would just be like sitting there like this. And then right next to those was like outside magazine, national geographic time. And I would just all day, all I would do is flip through the pages. I, I was obsessed. Like I would flip through really? the pages. And the worst part of this job was that from my window, I was in Pismo beach. I was like at the ocean, right? Maybe I, I mean, you could literally throw a rock and hit the sand. That's how close I was. Um, I could see the ocean so I could see waves all day and it just it was like taunting me like I had these magazines showing me pictures of places I wanted to go I had the beach saying like what are you doing the waves are good you should be out there and I remember vividly being like I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to give photography five years of my life and if I am face down in the dirt fine but if I've made it then excellent I just I'll at least I'll know that I tried. And at that point, you know, I was trying to pursue photography in like a very meager way. You know, I was yourself taught, right? Yeah. Self-taught. I was going to college at the time I was junior college. So I quit college and I quit this job and I gave everything to it. And I was like reaching out to friends being like, can I shoot your senior portraits? Can Mm -hmm. I shoot your wedding? Um, you know, walking into like random surf shops and skate shops saying, can I shoot the in- interior of your store for your website? Right. And that's like, lit- that's literally what I did. That's, you that's hustled, how I did it. hustled. Yeah, to get absolutely hustled. Yeah. Amazing. Well, let's pause there for a second and move on to chapter two, which is the first place that you fell in love with. First place I fell in love with. Hmm. I mean, home, home was the first place for sure. Like, I think that I, I think that through photography, and through this process, I started to realize that where I lived was really special because I remember, I remember I had plans out of high school to like move to Huntington beach so I could surf more. And I was just going to like do some kind of dead end job. And that was my plans. Right. And when I picked up a camera and I was, you know, 19 years old, 20 years old, I started to photograph and I started to realize just how special it was where I was because of, because of the access that I could get. I could drive 30, 40 minutes and be, you know, on a beach with nobody around and elephant seals and, you know, 
amazing waves. And so I think that this was the first place I fell in love with. But if it really, if, it, if you know, truth be told, it took me a few years to really kind of fall in love with an environment other than my own. And I'd say Iceland has been that environment for me, just the the impact it had on my life, obviously, because I've been there so many times and the people I really care about there. And it's a special place to me. It's a place that I think about a lot. I have an apartment there. I've, I've tried to set my life up so that it's a, it's a place I can exist in and be with my family and all these things. So um, so that's the environment for me that that stood out the most besides where I live. Mm. So yeah, as you said, you have this um, incredible connection to Iceland and obviously it's the most amazing country from all points of view, not just the landscape. The people are amazing. The food is incredible. Yeah, it's definitely gotten better. It's funny because like the food when I first started going there was not that great. Um, yeah, now they, there's a real know, food scene, isn't there? Especially in yeah, Reykjavik. Yes, they've, they've had uh, a bit of a like... Um, I guess you could say like a bit of a food renaissance because a lot of the meals that you get, a lot of the food that is so fancy and amazing is kind of this stuff where it it was once considered just like the, you know, the common food or the poor man's meal, you know, like salted cod and things like that. But but now what they've done is they've taken it and they've elevated it and they've yeah. made it, they've, they've, they're celebrating it. So they're, I think they're having a food resurgence and they're really celebrating their food culture. And that's really fun to see because I remember first going there, it was it was brutal. It was like, okay, this is um, this is hard living, you know. <laughs> so, what was your yeah. first impression when you first visited Iceland? Like, what was it? What was it like when you landed there and you got out onto that crazy landscape? Well, it was it was barren, you know. I mean, we we landed on the plane and I was looking around and I'm like, well, this is different. You Are know, we still on is, Earth? <laughs> yeah, like it looked like somewhere. It, it, it just it struck me so intensely because it looked like nowhere I had ever been. And I had been to some cool places at that point. You know, I had traveled to Indonesia and Australia and Dubai and Oman and Yemen and Central America and whatnot. But to go there and to be in an environment where I I, I had nothing to compare it to. And I think that as a photographer, that's super crucial. It's super crucial to to put yourself in environments that feel foreign because that's when your creativity starts flowing. That's when you start seeing things differently. If you're constantly kind of indoctrinating yourself, which is the same environments, um, you know, over and over that it's, it's, it's hard to see something new. Um, and I mean, I'm probably the worst person to, to say that because I, I tend to go back to places I really love, but I think what it is is like, once you hone in, on what that place is that that speaks to you in that way, then you you know you've identified it, you've found it, and you can just just like kind of sink your teeth in. So for me, Iceland's that place. I was like, whoa, I want to sink my teeth in. I want to really understand this place. I want to you know I want to uncover every rock and every nook and every cranny and and everything like that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. there's so, there's just so much to discover there in terms of like kind of fast forwarding them with your love of Iceland. I mean, you're saying all these different places that you'd been to up already by that point. So are you able to kind of sum up in a nutshell how you kind of made it to to that point in terms of the your career and how it was building and you know you're often coined as one of the very first career adventure photographers like how did that huh. how did that happen, you know? You know, well, well, it's funny because I think that there's a pivotal point people people need to understand where you go from just being like, say, a, a 
surf photographer or a climbing photographer to somebody who kind of like does a bit of it all. And I think that's kind of the the key component is that I was perpetually interested in learning new things. And I remember I was introduced to climbing through my friends at Patagonia and doing work for them when I was shooting. And then I, I was introduced to skiing because I had an assignment that was asking me to go here and there. And so I guess in my, in my experience, it is odd to have a job title that very, very few hold, very, very few have ever held. Um, and at times it, it asks a lot of me. It asks me to keep up with professional athletes in various forms. I never get the chance to excel at a certain thing because I'm so busy trying to like, you know, keep up with the next person or the next, you know, or the next athlete, whatever it is. And and I'm always lagging behind. That's just the part of it. Um, but I think what it is, is, is that there is a, I have a genuine interest in learning these, these skills, learning these pursuits and also documenting people performing at their highest. So tell me about some of these skills, like what you, what you mean for people who might not be so familiar. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so ultimately like I am in my job and in my career, there'll be moments where like next week I'm going to go heli skiing for a couple of days, which, awesome. you know, requires a level of proficiency, right? I'm going to go do that and document some, some people for a few days. And then I go straight from there to Norway where I'm shooting a catalog for Billabong, which means I'm shooting surfing on the beach and then I'm in the water. I've got my water housing, six mil wetsuit. You know, if, if I had dedicated all my time to doing just this one thing, that would be great, but I would, I would miss out on some of the other stuff. So ultimately, I guess what I'm saying is like, yeah, I, I, at times I have to like have a certain level of proficiency within all these skills, within sh- documenting or shooting surfing, within skiing. And sometimes that requires ski touring and keeping up and, and, or, you know, alpine climbing, um, climbing in general, being on ropes, right. Being comfortable, being in high places or on walls. And, I'll definitely say I'm not the best at any of them, but I have enough skills that I can get by. You have to be willing to commit yourself to something. Like if a big yeah. assignment comes up, you know, I've got a, a big expedition this summer and I'm, I'm already looking at my my months ahead being like, well, I'm going to train during these months. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. Really dedicate myself. And also I'm often working with other people. So what that requires is, is a level of dedication to yeah. those people. Yeah to kind of give them something, right? So, yeah. Well, actually, that leads me on really nicely to chapter three, which is the place where you learn the most about yourself. There's two things, right? There's the place I learned the most about myself as a photographer would be in in colder environments, right? And I, and I, and I know that sounds kind of cliche, but like it's places where they asked more of me as a person. They asked more of me as a creative because I had to give more of myself. I had to to give more of my own planning, my own effort, my own time, energy, all those things. Those were all the places that I feel like I learned the most about my craft. When it comes to like me personally, I'd say the place I learned the most is probably, you know, with my wife at home when my first son was born, you know, under and understanding like maybe some of my own personal insecurities and the things and the reasons that I do what I do. Because when you're, when you have to like face those things head on, when you're thinking about raising a child, I think that it, um, it really asks you to question your own sort of humanity in some way. So that to me is the, is the place, you know, it's, it's twofold. It's hard to just say one thing, you know. Today's episode is supported by CV Villas in celebration of their 50th year. 
Villa holidays are booming after the pandemic and it's not surprising to be able to have a home all for yourself where everyone can get together. Families, groups of friends is such a luxury. You know, forget about sharing the pool with anyone but your nearest and dearest. CV Villa's hand-picked properties are in the most beautiful places including Greece, Italy, Spain, France, Portugal, Croatia and the Caribbean selected for their location, quality and facilities and resort staff are available throughout your stay to help with all of your needs it's super easy to book with packages that include the villa flights and car hire and booking with cv means booking with confidence because your packages are protected cv villas know exactly what it takes to create the perfect villa holiday so give their villa specialists a call or visit cvvillas.com to find out more thanks to cv villas Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels easier even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do? Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. So chapter four then is the big chapter, your all-time favorite destination. What would that be? I, well, I mean, Iceland's up there, but I would say that the, the place that really blew my mind was the Kuril Islands. They're an island chain that, that connects Japan to Russia. 
Um, Really remote, really beautiful, hard to get to, hard to access. How do you access them? You you have to fly through Moscow, then you have to fly to Petropavlovsk-Kamchatsky, which is like Russia's main, um, you know, large kind of military base in in the in kind of the, the top of the world up there at the at the top of the Ring of Fire. It's across from Alaska and it sits alone. It's actually the largest independent city that's non-accessible by roads in the world. Wow! So you you fly there and then you get on a boat. Right. And we took a boat. We took a boat across these you know whatever thirty forty jagged volcanic islands that are that are these small little islands all the way to Sakhalin which is just above Japan there's no really better way to describe it than than otherworldly it felt different it felt unique and i think that through that experience having put in so much time to plan and put in so much time to create you know to bring that trip to life it really just felt validating to be there to have beautiful conditions to um to see incredible wildlife like that was so cool. You know, it was such a, a unique experience for me as a photographer who, again, I, I try to kind of pinch myself sometimes and remind myself like what I'm doing and what I'm up to and being like, wow, this kid from like central California is actually able to experience all this stuff. Like <laughs> how lucky am I? And I think that there, when, it, you know, I, I try to remind myself of that when things get challenging or things get hard or, or whatever it is. At a certain point, you just got to remember like, well, if you wanted to be comfortable, you should have just stayed home. Yeah. And so that those trips, those really those really otherworldly ones, they, they really bring you back to that experience of just remembering, you know. So so are the islands uninhabited? Yeah, um, some of them are. Most of them are. I would say about 90 percent. They were um, they were inhabited at once by Ainu people, which is kind of like that that cross between Japanese and, and Russian and that that area, the indigenous cultures. So there's a lot of remains there. And at one point they were used as like a staging area for World War Two military operations. Yeah, wow. So some of them have like, you know, oil drums, and little tiny bases that have kind of fallen apart. But for the most part, they are just absolutely the most um, barren thing you've ever seen. And what were you shooting there? Like, what were you looking to capture? Mm, I was shooting mostly um, landscapes. We actually ended up shooting a film called From Russia with Love that was um, about a Russian scientist named Vladimir Birkinov who was there to um, document the stellar sea lion population and its decline and trying to understand why, what's happening, you know, what, why is this going on? While we were there, one of the volcanoes, they're very active, erupted. And we were able to kind of witness that in real time. It was, it was crazy, really wild. Um, so we witnessed that in real time. And uh, it was, by, for, by all extents and purposes, just a crazy experience, like a really wild, really unique experience. Um, and if anything, the goal was just to go. We were trying to find an excuse to go. So we went there for a Russian cybersecurity firm. And it was an, it was an incredible experience. I'm super grateful that we got to go. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And I mean, you've been to so many remote places um through your career chapter five Mm. is your hidden gem and I feel like you're one of the people who I've had on my podcast who's maybe best equipped to answer that question like a place that you fell in love with that people might not know so much about you know for me a big part of what makes a place like a gem isn't so much just the fact that it's beautiful and it's pretty and it's hard to get to it's it's got to have something more than that it's got to have like a uh it's got to have a community 
um, Iceland within Iceland, you know, there are so many remote, unique communities because it's such a detached country. Like some of these places are nearly impossible to get to in the winter. And if you ever make it there and you get to Isafjordr, which is like the furthest town in the West Fjords, the largest population center that's that's removed from the capital. Um, it's amazing. I mean, it really feels like a sense of community. And I love how people kind of bond together in these harsh environments and almost become much closer. Like it's, it's unique to me when you go to a place again, like Iceland or wherever, where there's not a huge population and people tend to be very, fairly friendly and, and inviting. And then you go to one of these small communities and you're like, whoa, this is really what it feels like to be a part of something. Um, and you just see everybody interact and it's really special. Um, and I think that I've seen, I've been there enough times to see like massive storms and, and big, you know, them be affected by weather and people bond together and they figure it out and they, they make ends meet. It's really, it's pretty amazing. And so that to me is kind of like a gem that I really love. I mean, I could name a hundred towns. There also happens to be an amazing fish restaurant. I'm actually going to look it up right now. Um, while I'm, while I'm here, uh, and it's like one of the best restaurants I've ever, Oh, it's called, I can't even pronounce the name. It's called, Tjordhusid. Tjordhusid. I can. That's I can, very I can good that. Icelandic pronunciation, yeah. I'd say. Yeah, <laughs> I, it's it's actually a really hard Icelandic word, but it's um, but Husid is house, and I think it's a Thorhus. It's a fish restaurant. It's on the harbor, but on the harbor, where is it? On the harbor in Isafjordr. In, the in town. Isafjordr, right? Yeah. It, so in Isafjordr, you go there, and basically, like, there's this tiny little harbor, right? That's where it is, and there's just like one kind of restaurant out there. But I remember um, right before I was there this last summer, what's his name? Uh, the the you know the really iconic chef that yells at everybody and uh, oh, Gordon Ramsay. Gordon, Gordon Ramsay, yeah, he did a did a show in Iceland about food, um, like a little food series travel show, and that was one of his favorite restaurants. I think it might have been his favorite restaurant he visited, and he went like multiple times a night. And it is it's incredible. Like I've never been anywhere where I've been like just you need to take the plate away from me so I don't keep eating because it is so good. <laughs> is it because the f- yeah. the fish is so fresh, like it's so tasty? Yeah. Or it's- so they, they only they only serve what's fresh catch, you know, what's been caught either that day or the, the subsequent day. So it always changes. And then what they do is they just they serve it kind of like family style where there's like a it's almost like a, it's almost buffet style, but there's a limited seating. So they only do two seatings, 6 p.m. and 8 p.m. And there's only like so many seats. And if you get in. You, you have your table, you take your plate up, you go up and there's like eight dishes and it's like, here's the red snapper, here's the this. Here. And each one's prepared a different way. So you're mm. you're not eating like a, you know, a bunch of like, you know, fish that's prepared in one way. It's all very different. It's all very unique. Some of it's made more of a salad. Some of it's made more health, you know, more fatty. It's just like a really unique place. And um, Iceland has actually a, quite a bit of like Spanish influence because there were some Spanish settlers there who um, were fishing way back that. in the day. So yeah, so you can get like bacalao and stuff like that as well. It's like actually really good. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Is that all the way across the country or is that specifically in certain pockets? Um, mostly up in the West Fjords, actually. Um, yeah. So like pa- Patrick's Fjorder and some of these towns have, have uh, quite a bit of like history from, you know, Spain and, and Spanish settlers and whatnot. Huh. So they would come over there and I think they would implement some fishing practices and, 
and, you know, marry and breed and do the whole thing. So. How interesting. I didn't know yeah. that. So one of the destinations that you have uh, traveled to is Greenland, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I went there once on a boat. Yeah. yeah. And that is one of the destinations that my listeners have shown themselves to be most curious about. I think it mm. just has a kind of a mystique about it, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So what was your experience yeah. of Greenland? And would you kind of recommend it as a place for people to head to? Absolutely. You know, it's hard because my experience in Greenland was very much in the remote east coast of the country. I didn't go to like Nook or any of the capitals that you like fly into. And and some of those places are incredible. There's great food. There's like chefs that come over from, from uh, Denmark or, you know, chefs that have trained in Denmark. So like some of the best restaurants in the world, you have incredible chefs there, you know. Um, you have incredible food there too. And, you, you know, in some of those major cities, it can be lively and fun and beautiful and all those things. Where I went was very much raw, real Greenland. You know, I, I spent um, like eight days exploring one fjord that was so big that we barely reached the back of it, right? We went all the way up and all the way back. And then we did like a 30 mile hike over this pass to a village we got to see countless kind of like villages that had been sort of like left abandoned. Mm -hmm. um, we, we got to see, you know, a lot of people living in, in more indigenous ways, which is what I loved. I would say that there's nowhere in the world that compares. I mean, what we witnessed in that fjord, that one fjord in Greenland felt like you would take, you know, a, a huge section of Iceland or the Faroes or Alaska and you would smash it into that one area because it is so unique. And what makes it really unique is the amount of ice you get to see in the formations of that ice. Mm. Um, I think that is truly one of the most beautiful aspects of what you get to witness. Um, Greenland to me, seeing it by boat is really special, right? Because you're, you're kind of seeing it in a way that maybe some of the people would originally travel, you know, the, the kayak, um, or, or as I think it's been pronounced like the kayak, something like that is, was actually an indigenous to Greenland. It's, it's a Greenlandic name and it's something that they pioneered using. So they, they've traveled via water forever. Right. Yeah. And when you're in that water, you're just like, Holy cow, this is such a raw environment. It feels very real. It feels very, um, you feel very insignificant. And Does it I, feel vulnerable? Do you feel vulnerable in it? Very vulnerable. Very yeah. vulnerable. And, and but I but I love that. I mean, I loved I loved that feeling. You know, we would take our boat up to icebergs and like you know test the water, jump off onto the iceberg, walk around, jump into the water. It was it was a wild experience. And then to um to be in many of these towns where where people are going about their daily life, and you're just kind of like a fly on the wall witnessing what's happening. You know, you see sled dogs kind of. I was there in the summer, right? So sled dogs kind of chained up for winter, just, you know, itching to get out and go run. And, um, you know, you'd see people, you know, hunting and, and uh, kind of a lot of preparations for winter. Cause that's, I think when they get the chance to access most of their hunting is, mm. is that time. Um, it was, it was special. You know, I would also say there's a somberness to it, you know, because this environment's changing really fast. I mean, I didn't personally witness any of those changes only because I've only been there once. And I think to really witness those changes, you have to travel there over and over. Um, but obviously you could see signs of glacial recession and things like that. And, mm. uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a sombering look at, at life. Sometimes when you see these villages and, and they are, um, they fight hard with the environment and, yeah. um, and they, they fight hard for survival and it really gives you an appreciation for, um, for them and, and, and how, they endure that. So I think it's um it's a big dose of humanity along with the beautiful landscapes and the culture. And I just 
I, I look for environments like that where I can appreciate both. And I'm not just like, you know, whining and dining in the major city, I guess you could say. That's like important to me in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to ask you a bit about social media. I mean, obviously, you have a huge presence on Instagram, 3.7 million followers at, as we speak and, and counting. How has yeah. <laughs> uh, social media impacted your career? Because, I mean, that's a big following. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I would say that I'd be lying if I said that social media hasn't benefited my career in terms of certain things like selling books or getting the word out there on films or the projects I'm doing have a greater impact or influence now that I, I do have these channels. But more than anything, it's a tool to connect to people. I've always said to folks that who ask me about, you know, how to how to have a more impactful or more successful social media, like what do you, what do you do? And it really comes down to the fact that like social media isn't anything more than just glorified texting. If you're communicating with people, then you're going to find success. If you don't like to communicate with people or, or that's not really your thing, you're, it might be a harder thing for you to um, for you to engage with, right? It kind of, it kind of, uh, it really lends itself to the pe- person who like wants to connect. So, so that being said, when I first started using social media, you know, Blogspot, maybe like ten years ago, I would write these extended articles from my trips I was going on. My trips, my my work was going to the magazine. The magazine would publish these articles, but there was so much left. And so, when I started, it was like, well. I wanted to share a bit more of the story. I wanted to share a bit more of the experience. That is always what it's been for me. And, you know, it first started with my family, you know, my extended friends, et cetera, et cetera. And nowadays that's the way I see it. So my ability to connect with people through that platform is paramount to me. That's that's the biggest and most important thing. Mm. I think that if I was just using it as a, as a sales tool or as a promotion tool, I think I'd lose my mind and probably feel really um, – unfulfilled, but it's ability for me and for everybody to kind of connect, to share ideas, to, to see each other's works to like that. That's what it all, what, what it's all about. Um, Mm, Yeah. A a lot of people will want to get your one tip for shooting on a smartphone. And, you know, a lot of people can't travel with a a amazing kit like you like you do um yeah. like, like like for me, me for example I just travel with my you know my iPhone um and I want to take great pictures do you have one or two kind of tips that you'd that you say to people who ask for your advice yeah I think that the key component is like most of my best work it hasn't been about the technology of the camera it's it's about the composition so it's funny because when I look at a lot of my favorite images, I actually have a similar photo on the phone, right? Like it's, I have a similar frame. Um, I think that a big part of it really is creating depth in your images, right? There's a reason why we talk about rule of thirds and it doesn't mean there has to be three separate layers. It really just means that you want to create a level of separation between you and your subject, right? So oftentimes when I'm shooting a photograph, what I'm looking for is how do I create that depth? If I'm just staring at something eye level, then everything I see is going to just be stacked up, right? Like the background, the, I'm going to, the background, you know, the person, the subject, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's all going to be lined up, right? So I yeah. really need to think about how can I like sometimes elevate myself slightly above my subject so that I'm kind of like looking down on them. 
creating a level of separation between my background. I know this sounds complicated, but really when you think about it, it makes sense. It's like, I want to, I want to take the layers. Maybe there's a person, a portrait, and then maybe there's something else. And maybe there's something else. How can I create levels of separation? Sometimes that means being able to see what's behind them, be able to see what's separated from them, things like that. So I think that's, I mean, to me, that's like the biggest tip. That's so interesting. Okay, noted. So chapter six is the penultimate chapter, and that is your worst travel experience. Um, I mean, there's been a lot. Um, <laughs> there's been, there's definitely been a ton of those, you know, I would say that there, there's been some that feel like really scary in the moment and then nothing really happened. You know, there's been some where, um, I thought it was the end of the world and it wasn't, you know, but I think one of the worst ones was actually, I got a super gnarly staph infection in my leg, MRSA, which is medically resistant staph or whatever that means. Um, I'm not the best at all the acronyms, but, um, but I, I was in Tahiti and I got a cut on my leg from the reef swimming in the water. And then I went straight to Nicaragua. Um, and I was spending time documenting this place called La Chureco, which is like a huge kind of trash dump where a lot of, a lot of people lived. And, um, you know, we were, we were trying to kind of document this to help raise awareness for it. And anyway, it was just a, a really, uh, unclean environment and, and I got an infection and I remember looking down on my leg, nowhere near where my cut was. And it was like, it looked like a spider bite. And I was like, Oh, what's that? Whatever, you know, like, like normal, you just like, you want to, pop it or whatever. So a a week went by and it didn't go away and it was just red. And all of a sudden it got super sensitive. And I remember getting home. I was in Tahiti. I was in Nicaragua. I finally got home and I was like, my leg hurts. Like, like if I brushed up against something, it hurt. If I put pants on it hurt. And all of a sudden I saw these like red lines going from where that wound was up my leg towards like my heart. Right. Oh my and God. I went, I went to the hospital and they're like, yeah, you have staph infection and, and you need your bed. You gotta be bedridden like this. We have to take care of this. Like if this doesn't get taken care of basically, like if it reaches your major bloodstream, your major arteries, like you can like have to amputate your leg or something like that. I was like, Holy cow. So, um, I sat in bed for like a month and wow. I had to have, I had to have like I mean, it gets kind of gory. I don't really want to describe it all for you, but basically I had to have this wound open so it could drain. So I had like an open wound on my leg for like oh a month my and gosh. was on all the antibiotics. It was, it was crazy. And all I could think of is I was like, this is from like a fin cut, like a ti- like my fins that I would swim in the water, a tiny cut. And so that was one of the ones where it started out being no big deal. And all of a sudden it was like, no, this yeah, is this like is serious. Yeah. As opposed to the ones where like you're, you know, you lose all your camera gear or your, your stuff floods and immediately you feel like it's the end of the world. This is kind of the opposite where I was like, holy cow, like, why didn't I take care of that tiny thing? Because it, it turned into this massive issue. Mm. I can imagine being bedridden for a month as well for some like someone of your personality who's as busy as you are. That must have been really hard to swallow. You know, it was funny though because it was maybe like the best thing for me because I got to sit down and really like recollect like where I was and what I wanted to do and <laughs> yeah. Being, you know, with obviously my wife and my kids and everything like that, it was it was eye-opening to feel so immobile to like I couldn't help at all. Um mm. that kind of was that was pretty kind of a bummer so Mm. so we are on to the final chapter of your travel diaries chris that is chapter seven the destination that is at the top of your travel bucket list huh you know that's such a good one because i there are places that i aspire to go 
I want to go to like Lake Baikal in Russia, this big frozen lake where like one third of the world's fresh water is stored. Maybe you've heard of it. Um, I'd love to go to Mongolia. I'd love to go back to the Faroe Islands, love to go back to the Kurils. But I personally don't have like a single place that I'm just dreaming of going. You know, I've spent the better part of the last 15 years, 18 years traveling. And I got to say, I've seen a lot of the most incredible stuff I could have ever imagined. But in the words of Pico Iyer, who's an amazing travel writer, TED speaker, you know, he really said like the places you go, the places you experience, they don't fully come to realization until you sit with them and you process them. And I think in some ways I, I, I look at traveling like a drug and going to places is just like you're, you're injecting yourself with that dopamine hit and all that excitement. And I guess I just really want to be conscious of going to places where I can really take the time to like process it. And what is the story? Am I going there just to see a place or am I coming back to tell a story that's deep and meaningful? And, and so I feel in some way, like I, I hesitate a little bit in going somewhere new without having a story to tell about that place, without having an intention of traveling. And that's important to me. Mm. Um, I just, yeah, I think about that. But I mean, I think like Svalbard is, is high on my list and um, some of the Greenland again, for sure. You know, it's kind of like those colder environments I love. Yeah. And, and where's next for you? Where are you heading next? I go to Iceland and next on Tuesday and then I go straight from Iceland to Norway and then I go straight from Norway to Switzerland and then back to Norway and then back to Iceland and then home. Wow. Just just another few weeks in the life of Chris. (laughs) Thank you so much. Uh, Chris Burkard, those were your travel diaries. It was so fun chatting to you. Thank you. (laughs) And I have a lot more, so we should do a part two. I would love that one day soon. Thank you so much. Oh, that was the brilliant Chris Burkard. I really enjoyed hearing about such unusual destinations. His beautiful new book, Wayward, is out now. Thanks so much for listening today. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget to hit subscribe or if you're using Apple Podcasts to hit follow so that a new episode lands in your podcast app each week. If you're loving the podcast, it would be amazing if you could take a minute to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. To find out who's joining me on next week's episode, come and follow me on Instagram. I'm at Holly Rubenstein. And if you can't wait till then, remember there's six seasons you can catch up on. Thanks again for tuning in, everyone. And I'll be back next week. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do? Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, 
it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 